It begins, of course, with Herman Melville, the American writer, who was born when wooden walls and sail ruled the waves, but when he died in 1891, the age of steel and steam, so to speak, had now conquered the oceans of the world. He wrote novels, short stories, essays, and poetry, and his best-known novel is almost certainly Moby Dick, uh, a, a novel that brought him very little joy in his own lifetime, earning its author less than 200 pounds, but which we now think of as one of the very great works of American fiction. His first three books, however, had been greatly admired by his American readers, uh, who were developing a taste for stories of the seas, the oceans, and exotic lives in faraway places. The kind of uh, style of fiction, sometimes the subject matter that would reach its apogee in terms of English literature, by which I mean literature written in England in the novels of Joseph Conrad. Taipei, an early novel by uh, Melville, was a bestseller, uh, but after a measure of success in the 1840s, his popularity began to decline precipitously in the next decade, and it never really discovered or recovered during his lifetime. Indeed, when he died in 1891, he was almost completely forgotten. And it was generally supposed by his contemporaries and people who should have known better, including literary editors in American magazines, that if he wasn't mad, he was clearly pretty mentally unstable. None of this was perhaps helped by the fact he separated from his wife and tragically, uh, his son took his own life. Some people suggest that maybe Billy Budd is a response to the death of that son. When he died, Melville left an unpublished and unfinished novella with indeed the title Billy Budd. He'd begun it in November 1888, though it wasn't published until 1924, after it had been discovered amongst Melville's papers in 1919 by his first biographer, Raymond Weaver. The novel is set in the Napoleonic Wars uh, when there had been two mutinies within the British Navy that had fundamentally rocked both the British political and military establishment at Spithead, <laughs> and more seriously, uh, at the Nore. Billy is a foundling whose press gang from his ship, The Rights of Man, which takes its title, of course, from Tom Paine's celebrated book, uh, which had had a profound impact on the American Revolution of 1776. And he comes after press gang to serve under Captain Veer on HMS Indomitable. That wasn't Melville's name for the ship. That becomes the name when the ship becomes an operatic ship. The evil master at arms, Claggett, is determined to ruin Billy, who is both innocent and beautiful and indeed loved profoundly by his fellow sailors. Claggett reports to the captain that Billy has been stirring up mutiny. Accused and accuser are summoned to Captain Veer's cabin, where Billy, who stammers, cannot somehow protest his innocence, and he hits Claggett, who dies from the blow. At Veer's insistence, Billy is then court-martialed for striking a superior. He's found guilty, and the letter of the law is absolutely observed when he is finally hanged from the yardarm. This, then, is the story that the novelist Ian e. Forster and Eric Crozier turned into a libretto for Benjamin Britten to make an opera, Billy Budd. Britten's second opera, written in 18, 1951. Our guests this evening are Duncan Rock, who covers the role of Billy Budd in this production of Britain's Opera here at the Coliseum, and who sings the role of Donald tonight, and Martin Pacey, who's a former member of the music staff here at English National Opera, and they'll be exploring the music of the opera. But first, we're joined by Philip Reed, literary director, head of publications here at English National Opera, and editor of the Selected Letters of Benjamin Britten, 1952, to 1957 and the travel diaries of Peter Pierce. Will you welcome, please, Philip Reed? 
whichever. Philip, welcome. Let me begin by asking very simply, um, how did this idea for an opera based on Melville's novella come about? Well, as you, can you hear me, is that all right? As you said in, the, um, in your introduction, the novella wasn't published until 1924. Actually, there was an edition published in 1946 in this country, which was edited by William Plumer, who was a great friend of Forster's and a great friend of Britain's. Uh, and I think it was that edition, which is a little pocket edition, which had quite Excuse a bit of... Excuse me, the microphone's not in the right place. Is that better? Mm. So is that any better now? Yes. Christopher, I won't look at you when I'm answering a question, no, I'll no. look at the audience. It's a terrible thought to look at me anyway. <laughs> so I was saying about the novella that Christopher mentioned that it was, it was first published in 1924, um, but there was an English edition, a UK edition published in 1946, which was edited by a man called William Plumer, who is a poet, a, a writer, uh, and a publisher. Uh, he was a friend of Forster's and a friend of Britain's, so it kind of came into their circle and uh, in Britain's library there are, uh, which is up in Aldborough, there are two or three copies of that particular edition. So I think that's the edition, certainly which Britain knew and, and how he got to, to know the story. Forster, of course, had been uh, unknowingly the agent of Britain's first opera, his first great success, Peter Grimes, because he'd written an article that was published, or made his radio talk that was then published in The, the Listener about uh, uh, the, the Borough, which is the material that uh, George Crabbe, the poet, um, and presumably as a result of this they'd become friends, but how did he become involved in Billy Budd? I mean, how did, as it were, a friendship between a, a novelist, a literary critic, and, and the composer come about well, the opera? Well, that's quite right. Uh, Peter Grimes did, did uh, the, 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 the talk, uh, which became a, uh, an essay and the listener, did fire up Peter Grimes. Actually, Forster and Britain had met in the 1930s, the, at the end of the 1930s in Cambridge, uh, where Forster was based uh, because Britain wrote some music for a play by Auden and Isherwood, called the On the Frontier, which was premiered there, and it seems likely that, that Forster uh, met Britain at that time. Um, I think you have to remember also that Forster was a kind of role model, mentor figure to a lot of the next generation of British writers, uh, thinkers, musicians, particularly um, a role model for the gay writers and thinkers. I think that's quite important. Um, Forster uh, saw Peter Grimes, um, wrote, they, they, they started writing to each other. He lived in Cambridge. Britain was in Albright. It's not so far away. Even then, it wasn't so far away. Uh, and um, they, when Britain and Piers were in Cambridge giving recitals or perhaps doing operas, they would go and meet Forster. And Britain had a kind of loose connection with various people at King's College where Forster was based. Um, he knew Boris Ord quite well, and later David Wilcox uh, and the College Choir were quite important to him and to the Albra Festival. Uh, Forster was invited to speak at the very first Albra Festival in 1948, and the subject he talked about was indeed Peter Grimes and about the borough and about Crab. And he actually said at that talk, Peter Grimes, I mean, I'm paraphrasing because I won't remember exactly the words, but, but it's something along the lines of, Peter Grimes would have been a very different opera if I'd been the librettist. I would have done different <laughs> things. Um, and I think really out of that friendship, and, uh, and Forster was always very, very interested in music. He was a very musical person, I think. Um, out of that friendship came, formed this sort of idea that, that maybe he could in some way be involved in an opera with Britain. Um, and they they sort of decided, yes, we, we'd like to do an opera, and they scratched around for quite a long time 
um, to find a subject. Various things suggested themselves. I mean, a social comedy was something which kind of interested them at one stage. There was an idea to write a, an opera on the story of Margaret Catchpole, who's a, a Suffolk kind of uh, heroine figure. She she uh, was involved in smuggling and, you know, all that kind of sort of Navy-like, in a way, sea-like. Um, and eventually, I think somehow it just emerged that, that they should look at this Melville novella and see whether maybe that might be an opera. And um, so that, that was sort of decided upon in about 19, end of 1948, I think it was. They, they really got quite excited about that. The problem for Foster was he'd never written an opera before, you know, never written a libretto before. He'd not even really written a play. He'd written a pageant. He was a great essayist and broadcaster and critic. His last novel, I don't know when, was Passage to his last novel? That was about yeah. 1928, wasn't it? And he more or less stopped writing novels then. So he hadn't really written a big piece. And I think he felt, if I'm going to write this libretto, I don't know anything about how that really works. I can look at examples and see you know, what other people have done, but maybe I need a bit of help from somebody who knows about the theatre and about opera and what makes a good libretto. And the person that Britain had worked with up to that point fairly closely uh, for a few years was a man called Eric Crozier, who was a man of the theatre. He'd directed the first Peter Grimes. He'd directed um, the first Rape Lucretia, which was Britain's next opera, his chamber opera. He'd written the libretto for Albert Herring, which was his next chamber opera, a work which was in fact dedicated to Forster. Um, he'd written St. Nicholas. So, you know, he knew how to write words for music. And, and actually, I think the libretto for Albert Herring is a, is a masterpiece, actually, of how to write a comedy in, in music. So Forster was brought in as a, as a kind of man of the theatre, as a helper, as somebody who could um, be there for Forster to bounce ideas off, I suppose. And at what stage did Britain himself become involved? Well, Britain was always involved in the libretto from the very, pretty much the very first, first stages. He did not like um, <clears throat> people, you know, he did not like being at a distance from it. Uh, I mean, there's a famous occasion much later in Britain's life when um, Patrick White, the Australian novelist, sent him a libretto uh, and was very upset to find that Britain really didn't want to set it. I mean, he just, you know, no matter how distinguished you were, if he hadn't been involved in it from the beginning, it wasn't really something that would interest him because he needed to feel a connection with it. So, um, in fact, what happened with, and slightly unusually actually, but what happened with uh, the libretto for Billy Budd was that Forster and Eric Crozier uh, stayed in Britain's house in Alborough and they did a kind of three weeks in March 1949 and absolutely, you know, did a synopsis, studied very closely the story. Britain was very much involved in that. There's a, um, some uh, archival manuscript material where you can see Britain's written down a list of characters. He's analysed, in his handwriting, he's analysed the story, you know, the elements of the story that he's, that as, it, as it comes through. There's even a drawing of a sailing ship. And that's actually really important. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a little sketch. In Britain's hand, the different decks, main deck, quarter deck, below, whatever. Um, but it's really important because nearly every Britain opera Britain needed to be able to visualise where things were on stage. So there's one for Peter Grimes. Um, 
there's one for Death in Venice, actually, as well, and Curly River, all, all of those interesting pieces that there are sketches of how it was going to be. So he could just get a visual sense of what the stage pitch would be. He liked to bring the designer in quite early on, too. But going back to the libretto, so they made a draft of the libretto. Uh, the first draft was in three acts, and uh, they let it settle. And Britain would get in and have a look at it, and he'd say, no, I think you need a bit more, you know, we need a, we need a chorus here, or I think... There's too much here. You, know, you don't need too much for music. So maybe eight lines became four, whatever. Um, and then they went back again later in the same year in 1949, in October, and then reworked what they'd done six months earlier and came up with a four-act opera. And that's pretty much um, the shape. It, it had sort of settled pretty much by then. But as in every Britain opera, if you look at you know, what you might think of as the librettist's... Uh, typescript that they present to the composer, it's then covered, covered in scribbles and crossings out, compressions, expansions occasionally, uh, because Britain really, like Verdi actually, liked to be able to um, boss around, as if you like, he's a librettist, I mean, he's, he's in charge. They might get equal billing, but he's in charge. Um, and that was really true all the way along. And quite often in Britain operas, you find that the lines you remember the most, if you go back and look at the drafts, quite often are the lines that Britain writes himself, or they appear in his, you know, they appear in his hand. So it was a very, very close thing. And he, he never really, um, you know, there's no music written down at this time. He may be kind of turning ideas over in his head. He once famously said to someone, someone said, you know, how do you, you know, how's your new opera going? And he said, oh, it's written, all but the notes. <laughs> I.e., you know, he has, he has a kind of big shape in his head, but he doesn't know what the pitches are. He just knows it's going to do this here, and it's going to, you know, there's going to be an aria maybe there, and a bit for the orchestra. Yeah. So it's a kind of, it's kind of vague, blocked out, and it, it refines right down to something very detailed and very specific. And <laughs> There's something unique about Billy Budd, perhaps in, amongst Britain's operas, which is that it's performed in 1951 in the four acts mm. that the three of them had devised. And then in 1960, um, Britain revises it. Mm. Do you think he was dissatisfied with what had actually been achieved? First of all, or, or, or are there other reasons to explain why, and it's the, the two-act version we're going to hear tonight, yeah. why, why he changed his mind again? Yeah, I mean, he, he, after he, he revised it, he suppressed the four-act version totally. Um, <clears throat> The opera in four acts uh, is very close to what you see tonight, except uh, at the end of the original act one, that isn't, I mean, it's, it would be too simple to say acts one and two became one act and acts three and four became act two. That, that didn't quite work like that. Um, the first problem was in 1951, if you have it in four acts, there was an interval between one and two, two and three, and three and four. So you were there for a very long time. It felt like, I, th I think it was something like nearly four hours in the theater, it was a long time. And he felt that was too much. So in 1951, they took it on tour, Covent Garden took it on tour around uh, Birmingham and Manchester, and Britain conducted some of the performances. So they tried out, just joining acts one and two, you know, with no interval, and acts three and four with no interval. Well, that was a kind of intermediary stage. He was quite happy with that. But one of the things that happened on the, um, in the original version, at the end of the original act one, there was a big scene, a big muster scene on deck, where <clears throat> Captain Veer appears on deck, and the whole chorus, you know, are singing, Starry Veer, you're fantastic, you know, we, we love you, we'll do anything for you. 
and that went. And it sort of went partly, I think, because they were never quite happy with it. But more critically, Peter Pierce, who sang the role of Veer, was never very happy singing it because it required a kind of singing which he didn't feel was perhaps his best and all uh, the best he could do because it required a kind of heroic singing which perhaps wasn't necessarily his forte. And also it provided, it, it offered a, a moment in the critical press for the first night where it, it, it did get a little bit lampooned as looking a bit like HMS Pinafore. <laughs> I mean, it didn't sound like anything like HMS Pinafore, I assure you, but it, it did sort of... Um, it, it, I think it was Ernest Newman who, who, who said this. And, and that sort of thing, you know, how ridiculous it seems, but it's certainly wounded. And I think Britain really then felt that maybe there was another way of doing it. And so he revised it in 1960 for a, a radio broadcast on the third programme. Uh, and they went back and Forster and Crozier reassembled um, back in Alborough for a, for a day or two. And they uh, reworked, they took away this muster scene and reworked something and, and, and wrote that, that little scene which now um, t took its place. I think it's between Billy and, I never remember who's in it, Billy, Danska maybe. Uh, I mean, it does have the phrase, you know, Starry Veer in it, I think, but, but it's, not quite, you know, it's not quite that kind of ship's company all in view. Since then, since Britain's death, um, the four-act version has been recorded and it's been made available again uh, you know, to perform. We could, have, we could have performed the four-act version if we wanted to. Uh, I sort of quite like it, in a way, the four-act version, because I think it, in the revised version, you never see Veer until scene two in the cabin. And he's, he's not really much of a man of... You know, he's reading Plutarch and drinking sherry with his officers and... He's seen very much as a kind of thinker and not a man of action. And that scene which they took away showed him like that. And I also quite liked it because that scene, that muster scene, which ended act, uh, the original act one, showed the crew adoring Veer and, and, you know, and, and hero worshipping him. And then at the end of the opera, after they've hung Veer, and that's still here, this, uh, the end of the opera is still the same, you have a chorus where Veer is, you know, effectively allowed Billy to, be, to, to die, to be executed. And you have that kind of wordless, feral, kind of animal-like chorus of rebellion. It was, I thought, quite a nice counterpoint between the two. Uh, we don't have that anymore because the muster scene is gone. Um, but that was the version which Britain wanted. That's the one he presented, you know, and he withdrew the other one. That's the one he recorded. That's the one he allowed to be made on BBC television. So... It's just, um, you know, it's a bit like Don Carlos. There's many versions, and we have two versions. Two separate operas, maybe, in a way. Well, in a way, perhaps, but they're not, there's not so much different about them. Philip, thank you very much. Stay with us, because we're going to talk a little bit more about the opera itself. Um, also, we, would you please welcome our second set of guests, Duncan Rock, who covers the role, as I've said, of Billy Budd in this new production of Britain's Opera here at the Coliseum, and who's also on stage tonight singing Donald, uh, which to some explains the, way, explains the way he's going to look. It isn't that he's on the run from the Metropolitan Police, uh, um, or indeed that you should expect his probation officer to emerge from the lift behind us. He is in character of Donald, though he's going to talk about. But, and he's joined by Martin Pacey, who, as many of you will know, is a former member of the Music Staff at English National Opera. Would you please welcome Duncan Rock and Martin Pacey.
Duncan, what are you going to sing for us first? Um, I'd like to sing um, Billy's first aria, which is Billy Budd, King of the Birds. And um, he sings this almost immediately when he gets onto the ship. And it's, uh, it's sort of essentially a burst of enthusiasm from him uh, where he says goodbye to his old life and to his old ship. And he rejoices and welcomes this new life as a, as a sailor on uh, the Indomitable. Billy Bird, king of the world, up among the seahooks, up against the storms, looking down on the deck, looking down on the waves, working aloft with my mates, working aloft on the foretop, working and helping, working and sharing. To the old life, don't want it no more. Farewell to you, old comrades. Farewell to you forever. Farewell, right, Simon. Farewell, Lord, right, Simon. Thank you. Um, do you think it's important that Billy is a foundling, that he's got, as it were, no personal history? Yes, I think it's, I think it's quite significant. Um, uh, I think in, in two ways, actually. I think it intensifies his relationship with Captain Veer, and I think it makes it more obvious why he would be so keen to, to grasp onto a, a sort of father figure or a role model, uh, a male um, having not uh, had parents or, or a father figure in his life before. I think it makes that relationship a, a bit more intense. And also I think um, it also gives him a sort of uh, fable-like quality where he's not restricted or bound by, um, I guess, the baggage of, of family or, or being from a certain place and, and stereotypes and things like that. He sort of, he sort of just appears out of nowhere. Um, and I think it gives him a slightly more fable-like quality, which um, uh, improves his mystique, almost. I, I always wonder, too, just how innocent he is. I mean, the extent to which does he, is he aware of the effect that he has on Veer, the effect that he has on his fellow sailors? Indeed, is he aware of just what he's done to Claggett? I don't think so. I think in that sense, he, I think he's very innocent in that... I think there's a naivety to him which makes him innocent. And I think he's innocent in the sense that his intentions are very pure. Um, he, uh, he's not innocent in a sort of pacifist or Ga uh, Gandhian sort of sense of, of the word in that, you know, when he's attacked on the boat by Squeak, he's very, very uh, willing and happy to defend himself. And, and, and come the battle scene, he is uh, very willing to, to jump on a French boat and, and kill people. I mean, he's, he's not innocent in that pacifist sort of sense. But I think he's, 
always has the best intentions. I think that's, that's where his innocence comes from. How difficult is it as a role to sing? It's quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, is, it is difficult because um, uh, it requires some extremely sort of boisterous uh, high-pitched singing and also some extremely quiet, reserved singing, um, often within very, very close proximity. Uh, it's quite long. Um, and also, I think this is more due to the convention of, of previous productions, but I think there's a certain... Um, expectation of physical characteristics and a physical uh, presence that comes with singing the role and, and being sort of lively and boisterous on stage. We can also, which can make it more difficult to, to sing. Um, but it, but it seems, seems to me that, that it requires everything that the baritone is supposed to have, you know, in, 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 in his armory. The lyric quality at the top, uh, as well as the kind of, you know, the baritone of action and so forth. Absolutely. I mean, for a, I mean, it's a dream role for, a, for a, any young baritone, really. Um, but yes, it, 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 it's, um, I think the, the, the next aria I'll sing is, is quite a common audition aria for young baritones, but it's quite misleading because um, being able to sing that doesn't necessarily mean you can sing the entire role. Um, there are certain elements, and you're here tonight, where the orchestration is extremely, extremely heavy. Um, so you need to have the ability to, to have the, the piano reserved, beautiful singing with the, 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 powerful, um, the powerful singing to, to be able to sail over the orchestra. Your, your arms, as we've teased you, are really <laughs> dressed for Donald. Tell us, just, tell us just a little bit about the role we're going to see you actually singing on stage tonight, Donald. Sure. Donald is another sailor on the ship, and he's a young man like Billy, but he has been on the ship for some time, so he's very, very aware of the workings, and he's the first person to warn Billy about Claggett, and he's, 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 a, nasty, he's a nasty man. I think he's, Donald is, is quite um, a leading figure on the boat. He, he sort of leads the sea shanty, and he's the first to volunteer to board the, the French vessel. So he's quite, um, I guess, a, a leading figure, but he is, he is just a sailor like Billy. But they, they develop a close friendship um, in Billy's short time there, and in fact, he even promises, as, as Billy sings in his aria, uh, Donald promises to be with Billy um, when, when he's hanged. So they, they do develop a very close bond. Martin Pacey, if I asked you the impossible question, which is how you try to characterise the music uh, that Britain writes for Billy, where would you begin? Uh, for the character of Billy, you mean? Uh, well, for or, Billy and indeed the opera itself. Well, I, I think um, it, talking of Billy specifically for a moment, I mean, you, would, you, were, you were, um, Duncan was, was talking about a, a burst of enthusiasm. I mean, I think there is an immense uh, positive energy which uh, Britain writes for the character of Billy. Um, and uh, this, of course, is, a, is a, an absolute eruption into this very repressed world of the ship. Um, very beaten down. Um, and I think um, uh, one thing that interests me very much, and in some ways it's, it may seem like a, a, an obvious uh, feature, but it's, uh, it's really uh, Britain's very bold reworking of an old idea, which is the tension between uh, the, um, the major and the minor in music. Uh, Brit um, Billy's music, for example, tends overwhelmingly to be either major in its line or in its underpinning. 
Um, and uh, you you then find that his uh, his nemesis, or rather his uh, the, the opposite pole, which is Claggart, um, tends overwhelmingly towards his natural tendency is to be minor. Although he occasionally pretends to be major when he's sucking up to the other officers, but it's like a false smile in a way. Um, and I think um, uh, I mean you know you, you can you can illustrate this I think very much by uh, in terms of sound. I mean if you uh, uh, take the uh, beginning that we're we're about to do uh, this uh, aria that Billy sings when he knows he's been condemned. Um, this very calm major thirds, um, and I think major in in terms in in relation to Billy means open, honest, good. I think that's what Britain means means it to be. Um, Contrasted against, uh, for example, Claggart's, uh, the, the accord that comes at, at the climax of, of Claggart's aria, where he's talking about the world in which he is uh, finally uh, imprisoned himself, this, this world of depravity, and it's one built on the minor uh, third, which is which is a really terrifying sound, I think. It's a real prison for Claggett that he can't escape from and he can only just repeat this chord. So I think it's a very, uh, it's a very bold reinterpretation of, a, of an old idea that you know, major is good, minor is not so good, if I can put it very br brutally. Martin, do, are there a series of, of, of recognisable musical motifs that Britain uses for the characters, perhaps as you've suggested, or, or indeed for, for, for moments, events within that he works symphonically in. It's a huge orchestra that he's working with. It, it is, I mean, it's actually, I think the biggest orchestra of any uh, Britain opera, in fact. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I think of all Britain operas, this one, I mean, I haven't, although I haven't done an intensive study of it, I, I mean, even just looking at it uh, from the point of view of, of, of being practically associated with it, it's very, very tightly worked in terms of small motifs, uh, small melodic cells that that he, uh, that he often, um, rather than perhaps being associated with particular characters, although there are some, I mean, there's a very sort of jagged one, which uh, is, uh, is Claggett's uh, motif based on fourths. Um, but there, for example, he will use a motif and take it a, 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 and um, put it into different contexts to, to mean different things. Um, so that you have this rising fifth which I think is first sung by Veer. What have I done with, with a, a sixth over the top of it? Um, this uh, is then the sailors sing the same thing, but they do it um, in a much changed context, so it has a heaviness. It's the heaviness of, uh, of the labor that they have to do. Uh, Billy takes it up, I mean, when you come in, you know. Um, but actually, then it's in a much brighter, with this major key uh, um, uh, um, underpinning, it has a much brighter effect. It's more to do with aspiration and really wanting to get on with the job. Um, and then right at the end, we have the same uh, motif, which actually is, um, becomes uh, angry and mutinous uh, with the sailors. Um, but all of that sort of serves to hold the, the structure together, I think, in, in a, very, very tightly, actually. I mean, there are, you know, there are other examples, but I think that's probably the best in some ways. We're going to hear some music. Duncan, just tell us, this is the, this is the, the final aria, really, for, for Billy. This is the moment when he knows he's going to be hanged. What's he singing about? That's right. He, he is found out, he's just been told by Veer that he's to be sentenced to die um, at first light. Um, and he is in a, a cell by himself, 
and he i mean he's i i think he's sort of appreciating his last moments by observing the beauty of the world and he sees he sees the moon shining through the window and he, he even in this it really symbolizes his naivety and innocence and positivity and, and beauty because even in in this point of his life he's still able to observe the the beautiful things in the world and this is well this is the last thing he sings But no, 
it is dead, then I'll be come to think. They'll lash me in hammock, drop me deep. Fathoms down, fathoms, how I'll dream fast asleep, I feel it stealing Duncan Rock, Martin Pacey, thank you very much. Stay with us, because I'm sure there may be questions the audience would like to ask you. Philip, can I come back to you? Um, a question, really, a very simple question. Is this opera about Billy Budd, who gives the opera its name? Is it about the dark, evil Claggett, uh, a kind of distant, if not a close cousin, to perhaps Iago in Otello? Or is it about Captain Vere, who makes a terrible moral decision? Well, I could say it's about all of them, I suppose, but uh, which is true. Um, I think, really, for Britton and Forster and Crozier, it was about Veer. I think the, the dilemma which Veer uh, finds himself in, the moral dilemma, is the one that interested them. I think there's a, a letter from Forster, maybe to Britton or someone else, where he says, you know, we had to save um, Melville from, from Bod. We, we had to... Veer is the character. And, of course, that's really why, I suppose, not that I could see Peter Piers playing Bod, but... You know that that for Piers that was the role which he he would he would immediately be allocated, uh, and to which in a way, um, you know, he brought his his family uh, background because a lot of his uh, uncles were were admirals and sea captains, and um, there's a kind of military background there in in, in his family. Um, so I think for 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 them it was about Veer, even though it's still called Billy Budd. There is, of course, that celebrated line by Enforcement, which I'm going to probably par have to paraphrase, which is, if I was, um, had to choose between betraying my friends and betraying my country, I hope I would choose to betray my country. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and, and I wonder if that's really also what drives this opera, that yeah, the, the notion of friendship that neither Veer nor Claggett can acknowledge. Claggett does, but is terrified of it, and Veer is perhaps frightened of what this might mean. Yes, I think that, I think that is right. Um... The great thing I think about a lot of Britain operas, one of the things that always I find interesting about them is that, like all great works of art, they can operate in all kinds of different levels, and you can still you know, appreciate it in different ways. But also the thing that's very central in Britain operas 
seems to me that there's a lot of ambiguity goes on all the time. What's actually going on? What happens in the turn of the screw? What's happening in Death in Venice? Uh, even in Peter Grimes, what, you know, what did Grimes do to these boys? It's never spelt out, really, uh, in any place. And I think, I think Britain was quite interested in, in that kind of ambiguous um, way of, of, of creating art. Uh, and you know, clearly in this opera, as in several other Britain operas, there is a, a homosexual undertow in the piece. I mean, it's, there's something going on there. And you can uh, read that in the Melville, and you can decide for yourself whether you, if you're a director uh, or an artist uh, singing in the piece, how much you want to bring that out or how much you just want to keep it you know, arm's length slightly, and it's there, but do we need to know about it or not? And of course, when Britain was writing these pieces, uh, I mean, you couldn't really have imagined him uh, writing Billy Budd and allowing a production which would really emphasize, you know, that Claggett totally is uh, obsessed by, by Billy and attracted to him and is re repulsed by that obsession and has to deal with it. I mean, I mean, Britain wouldn't have wouldn't have allowed that to happen in his in his time, but partly because that's probably not really possible in the fifties for him. Um, in the same way that you know, the turn of the screw. I mean, it's such that is such an ambiguous novella, and so much written about who, what really is going on there. Is it in the governess's mind? These ghosts are they real? Well, for Britain, they were real because he makes them sing. He says so. They are real for me, but actually. You know, he can say that, <laughs> uh, but that's one thing. What he really thinks might be something else. You know, he's quite clever at, at disguising what, what he might, might feel about it. So I think, I think ambiguity is one of the things he, he likes in the pieces. It's interesting as you're talking, I mean, I'm thinking not only, therefore, can we see the pieces being about uh, uh, the homoerotic, but we can see it also as about the consequences of sexual repression, emotional repression. We can see it as a terrifying conflict between good and evil, but maybe also about class, too, about yeah. the terrible constraints that yeah. class imposes on people uh, and their natural feelings, yeah. officers and sailors. Yeah. I mean, in that, when I mentioned that uh, uh, this production doesn't look like that because it's not on a sailing ship, it, an identifiable sailing ship but you know in the original production britain was absolutely obsessed with the fact that these people the officers are on the main deck and they were dressed in 18th century costume they wore wigs they were in charge and the uh crew were clearly not um, in charge at all they're, they're down below they're repressed uh, and kept in their place, and, and that kind of structure was very important to him. I think in the in 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 allowing him to write the piece. I mean, that's carried over in this production. I mean, you know, you see the officers on a, on a kind of gantry affair, and Claggett. I mean, I think it's a really interesting thing about this production, and it's a simple thing actually, but Claggett appears from below. I mean, he's the master at arms, and he's the most evil thing and the most feared person on the ship. And he comes up from, as it were, you know, some swampy mire below uh, onto the deck. And I think that's actually quite a, a shrewd and, and neat move of the director to do that. Um, and also, he's always dressed, I think, in black, isn't he? Claggett, the costume doesn't change. It's, it's always black. He has black, flattened down hair. Veer, however, appears, he's the only character, I think, is dressed in white. So that immediately, you know, you've got that kind of good and evil, black and white thing going on in your head. Um, and I think Veer first appears 
above no he doesn't because he's in the plutarch bit no he's on the main on the main stage but you know there is that 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 uh, that's very strong in the piece if you've been looking at the images here, you'll, you'll have oh, some course. sense of, 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 of yeah. what we've been talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, we do have, as always, the roving microphone. If you'd like to ask any of us up here questions, please put your hand up, catch my eye, and we'll get the microphone to you. Would anyone like to add anything or ask a question? Do we have a, Yes. Hold, just a second. Wait for the microphone so we can hear. Uh, why did the director in this piece not choose to use the ship? Well, there is a ship. I mean, there is a ship. We can't. If it is a ship, it I think. Is, I think uh, it's a ship. D David, sorry, is um, this is David Alden? David Alden is he's very interested in uh, relationships between characters, and 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 actually, exactly as as you said, the ambiguities in the Britain operas. He was very interested in fixing the ones that he wanted to bring to the surface and making them very uh, prominent. Um, he's not at all interested in um, sort of uh, historical or technical, technical accuracy in terms of costume and set. Um, and he also uh, did mention the fact that there was a very successful production a couple of years ago that did that. It was a very technically accurate production at Glyndebourne that actually half of us were in. So um, <laughs> uh, I suppose there was a sense of he, he wanted to do, it's not different for the sake of different, but he certainly wa didn't want any replica productions. I think he's, he's, he had a very specific idea. I think it works very well. For, for what it's worth, if you know the story of the battleship Potemkin and you know Eisenstein's film, there, there is something there, I think, that relates it back to, to, to the moment, to the sea and to ships. Do we have another question? At the front row, just wait for the microphone to come, it's on its way. I'd like to take up your point about the ambiguity. For me, I think that Claggett is a far more interesting character than Veer, because Veer is doing everything that he should do according to his status. Mm -hmm. And having just read Melville's um, novella, what I got from that was the fact that he really liked Billy Byte. He almost treated him and saw him as his son. And so it, what he did was what he had to do according to the naval discipline. And what was very critical was the fact that this was a very, very big ship with a lot of men. And so having discipline was absolutely crucial. And if you didn't keep to the code of the naval discipline, then he'd lost it. And therefore, although he was starry there and he was much appreciated by his men, there was also in the background um, this mutiny and his ship could not have, that could not happen on his ship, on his watch. And also they had to fight the French. So to me, the dilemma is not there. He's doing everything as he had to do. What is interesting is the motive of Claggett, who I liked very much what you said about actually he was very much uh, appreciated all Billy Budd's qualities, mm -hmm. but in some way there was this evil. And that to me is a far more interesting thing are there other productions where that comes out? I don't know. I, I, I've, I've, I've seen, I think, eight Billy Buds now, and uh, I can't think of a production that, where, where Claggett has emerged 
as anything other at one end as deeply sexually repressed and, 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 and terrified of, of the consequences and how this has been turned at the other end of the spectrum into a figure who is darker, blacker, more evil than Iago in the end, who in the end represents everything that for Verdi, that terrifying word nulla, nothingness, the end of the, the great credo in, in, in Otello represents. I've, I've never seen him as anything other than one or the other of those. Vera, in a sense, to take up what Philip is saying, is always in productions I've seen, been a much more um, movable figure. Sometimes a man trapped in his own class, his own, uh, own position, unable to move beyond it. Sometimes a man who uh, is acutely aware of the moral dilemma, but unable to translate his moral sense or ethical sense into the appropriate action. Um, I think, for what that's worth. Do we have one last question, I think? Or do you want to add anything? Oh, no, I, I, just, I, yeah. I want to say one thing that has been actually brought out in the programme this evening, which I thought was very interesting, was if you talk about Claggett as this nature of a, a sort of sexually repressed um, man who, and he's, he's repulsed by his desire um, for, for Billy Budd, there's also a, a sense of self-preservation because it actually in, printed in, in the program are the Articles of War under which uh, Billy is hanged for trying to incite a mutiny. Uh, also punishable by death was uh, homosexual acts. So there, there's a sort of an element uh, with Crucially, it's sodomy. Sod, yes. Very interesting. Mm. Well, that's another story. <laughs> but you know, may, uh, potentially an element of, of self-preservation with Claggett. He's worried about um, his desire um, being his downfall in the end. Mm. We've, we've time for one more question, if anyone would like to ask. Yes, just let the microphone come. It's on its way. Here it comes. This is a comment rather than a question. Um, when I was a young student in New York City, I got a subscription to the Met. And it was probably late 70s or early 80s. And one of the items on offer was Billy Budd with Peter Pears as Captain Veer and the whole original production. It was true totally traditional. They had a most fantastic set where it telescoped up into three levels. So you could have that um, where the offices were above and the other men were below. So, and, and you, know, as, you know, I didn't really know about Peter Perrins at the time. And when I started to hear him, he said, I'm an old man now. And I thought, yeah, he really is. You know, I don't know when, <laughs> I don't know when he died, but he was a very old man. And it was remarkable. What he did was remarkable. It was the most incredible performance. But does Peter Pierce die? Um, well, he died in 1986. That, that was okay, in about so 1978 would be, or 79. Yeah, early, so he's yeah. in, his, in his late 60s, just before he stopped singing. <laughs> yes. But you know, he was very good at it, very good. Well, he stopped singing because he had a stroke, so he had to, he had to give yeah, up. But, yeah. but he, uh, he was very good at husbanding his resources yes. and focusing his voice in a way. Um, wow. That was the second thing he did at the Met. He did Death in Venice at the age of 64 for the very first time. Well, his voice wasn't what it had been, obviously, well, when obviously, he was younger. But, and it yeah. was an old man's voice, but it was perfect. Yeah. It thank was you. absolutely perfect. Thank you very much for that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all of you for being here, being an attentive, thoughtful audience as always. Uh, special thanks there to our, our three guests, uh, Philip Reed, Duncan Rock and Martin Pacey. Thank you. Thank you.